Thank you for listening to and sharing Our Body Politic. We're grateful for your feedback. So after you listen today, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us and we read everyone. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we dive deeper into reproductive rights in Texas and try to figure out what's really going on with Facebook and what that will mean for communities of color especially. First, a conversation with the MacArthur Fellow. Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet, lawyer, and 2021 MacArthur Fellow. He spent over eight years in prison and told me how reading books really planted the seed of what his career would become. Right before the 2020 election, Betts published an op-ed in the New York Times magazine, knitting together his experience of prison, a traumatic harm done to his mother, and the history of politicians who impact the criminal legal system, like then-candidate for Vice President Kamala Harris. I asked him on to tell me about how he thinks about the intricacies of the topic and his poetry. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Duane. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. About a year ago, you wrote that piece... It came out October 20th of 2020. And among other things, you talk about your mom having been sexually assaulted. Why did you decide to write about that in that New York Times piece? Yeah, part of it is if you go back to 1984, if you go back to the early 1990s, when we talked about national policy, even though it had a a real direct influence on how I lived my life, it had a direct influence on what I experienced in prison, It meant that I didn't have an opportunity to get a college education because Pell Grants was stripped out of prison. And I was just thinking that, you know, being able to write about the senator and thinking about what everybody else had written about her and the way in which what they've written about her flattened out all of the the nuance and the tragedy and the trauma and, and what is going on in cities and communities all across this country. And it flattened out my mother's story. You know, I felt like I wanted to use the opportunity to deal with something that I've long tried to reconcile. My desire with freedom, with my understanding that some people commit profound harms in a world and in a country where we have no real context for accountability. The piece that you published included you speaking to then-candidate Harris. Now she is Vice President Harris. How do you see her as a public figure? Because you go into a lot of you know, the complexities of your different relationships to her history as a prosecutor. What do you think now? It's very early in her VP ship, you know, but we all get to choose what will matter to us and what footprint we will leave. Joe Biden left a huge footprint on the criminal justice system and the way things operate, both rhetorically and through policy. And and I haven't seen it yet, but I, I would love to see VP Harris decide that she wants her footprint 15, 20 years from now to have demanded something that was like more hopeful, more promising, and something that believed in the the reality that um, Mitchell Jackson served time in prison, just won a Pulitzer Prize. I served time in prison, mm-hmm. went to Yale Law School, um, Desmond Mead, MacArthur Fellow. Like who was creating policies and opportunities that believe and us, you know, the, you got a long list of people, and I've just named a few, and I've named a few that have national profiles, but you have a long list of people who proved, like, fundamentally was possible. I would love to see policies that suggest that they believe in that. And we could start with parole. 
You know, we could start with bringing back parole on the federal level. We could start with pushing and incentivizing states to increase their parole release rates. We brought Pell Grants back. Now let's start rewarding some people who have, people have spent, I, I have friends who spent 25 years in prison and they expected to die in prison and they still were taking classes. They still were studying. And we live in a society that 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 is not welcoming them. I would love to see VP Harris pay attention to some of these narratives and think about how policy could could help them understand that freedom uh, is not as far away as it feels right now. Tell us about the redaction project, and then I want to get into some of your poetry. Yeah, so one of the things was I have read these lawsuits by the Civil Rights Corps. And the lawsuits were suing cities and locales because they were locking people up because they couldn't pay traffic tickets, because they couldn't pay minor fines, because they couldn't pay bail. But what I found profound about the lawsuits was that it said, I'm going to address the technical legal question, but I am also going to tell you what happened to the lives of these folks. You lock somebody up because they can't pay a $1,000 traffic ticket, and then they lose their job while they're locked up. Or they're a single parent, and you lock them up, and who's taking care of their children? And it was beautiful, except I thought it was really complex and most of my folks wouldn't really be able to wade through the 35, 40, 50 pages of legalese. And so I wanted to strip it. So you just had the voices of these folks talking. And I did that. And then me and Titus had been going back and forth for a long time about, you know, potentially collaborating. But it's really hard to think about how to create art in which the text isn't just a substrate for the image or vice versa. Mm-hmm. But the visual element of the redaction lines allowed it to stand alone visually so that when he was creating these etchings, the two pieces could be in conversation. And you mentioned Titus in your poem, Ghazal. Am I pronouncing it right? Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that poem. Yes, the, the line is on. Titus Kafar etched faces against these gray bars. He knows redaction is a dialect after prison. And what's cool about the poem is that, you know, it ends with this this line, after prison, every couplet is written in couplets, and it always ends with after prison. Like I say, um, name a song that tells a man what to expect after prison. Explains Occam's razor, you're still a suspect after prison. And each of these things, they weave together to tell 15 different stories, but to tell those 15 different stories in a way that you begin to recognize that those stories overlap and, and, and are in conversation with each other. And it's all a, a, a push to, to realize that after prison, like the last couple of says, um, Shahid, sing, you're loved, not shipwrecked after prison. And, and, and the poem becomes this, you know, articulation of this desire. Everybody called me Shahid in prison, but it's not just a desire for me. It's a desire for everybody who knows prison intimately, not to be shipwrecked when it's over. And you also have a line in here, the state murdered Khalif with a single high bail, Khalif Browder, who eventually killed himself after just being kept jailed, not even imprisoned formally, jailed. And explain how bail relates to his story and to the much bigger story for people across the country. I mean, for his story, he allegedly stole a book bag and they kept him in Rikers for three years for um, a robbery charge. And they set a bail that was too high for his family to pay. And, and, you know, I've I've been to Rikers, Um, not incarcerated at Rikers, but I've been to Rikers as somebody invited to speak to some young folks and to walk around and look. And it is a 
dark places. Most prisons and jails are dark places. But the way it relates to that poem and to this broader work and to the whole um, bail reform movement is, you know, bail is meant to ensure that you come back to court. It is not meant to ensure that you remain incarcerated. And in, in prisons, and I mean, in jails across the country, judges are setting bills out of reach of the people who are incarcerated. And it's not a question of safety. It's just a question of, of ease. If I make this too expensive for you, maybe you'll plead guilty. And what's really tragic about, you know, the ultimate tragedy is that uh, if you really care about this work, you're asking two questions always. How does the system ruin us? And how are we playing a role in ruining ourselves? And it was us who terrorized, terrorized Khalif Barada while he was locked up. And it's, a, it's like a tragedy. It's one of those things that, that we need to figure out how to address both. And know, Rikers is, is, you know, back in the headlines. I mean, it, it's never far from the headlines. But here's just two from The Appeal. A homeless man has spent 800 days at Rikers after stealing cold medicine. Now his prison sentence may be beginning. Another one is the New York Times. Sexual assaults are worsening a crisis at Rikers, jail officials say. So there's already a crisis and now there's more crisis. I mean, how does it make you feel to watch us not necessarily learn from the past and from the death of people like Khalif Browder? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, though, because when we say watch us not learn, I think that's the the reason why we haven't learned is because we don't believe it's us. You know, I mean, we believe it's the jail officials. We believe it's the prosecutors. We believe it's the judges. But the truth is, it's it's, it's all of us. You know, we have long allowed a system to operate in our name that is radically unjust. And we demand accountability without articulating what accountability looks like. And and what undergirds the story is our inability to understand how how to respond to true harm and how to do it in a way that doesn't strip anybody of dignity. And because we can't do that, then of course you end up doing 800 days for, for stealing cough syrup. You know, because what happens is all of the people who should never be in Rikers must be there to make the system make sense. Hmm. And you're a lawyer. So as an artist and a lawyer and someone who has seen the system from the inside, what do you want to see happen? And and what could I do? You know, me personally, what could we do as citizens together? See, I was guilty. I pled guilty. I went to prison for eight and a half years. And nobody was fighting for my freedom when I was just saying I was guilty. Now, a lot of mm. people now say they would, but that's because they look at Dwayne right now and they like me and they think I'm intelligent. But when I was 16, what would have spoke most loudly to them was the pistol that I had admitted to using to rob somebody. And so Mm -hmm. when when we say, what can you do? And I say, what can I do? I mean, the first thing is is to find a way, really like Stevenson said, Brian Stevenson says, is to be proximate to the harm. And and that Mm -hmm. harm is twofold. Somebody raped my mother. So I got to be proximate to that harm. And I got to be proximate to what I expect the system to do to the person that raped my mom. And what am I willing to yeah. articulate and argue that the system should do? And I think one way to become proximate, if it's not about listening to the people that you know and how they've been hurt and and what the system has done to them, is I do think it's about reading books, reading reading John Edgar Wyman's Brothers and Keepers, trying to understand what it means to be incarcerated, right? 
Reading The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. Reading Women Talking by Miriam Taves. Reading these books to get a real sense of what the system looks like on a profound human level. I, I think we're trying to get to the moment where we can have a real influence on policy. But in, in my head, it all starts with, you know, you could become truly fluent and know more about the Department of Corrections and prisons and jails by reading five books. And so I think we should all just, you know, read those five books. And then when something comes up, speak about what we've learned and try to take local action. Dwayne, I am so grateful to you. Thanks for spending some time with us. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Reginald Dwayne Betts, a poet, MacArthur Fellow, and lawyer. You can support his work sending books to prisons by going to freedomreads.org. It's been just over two months since the abortion restrictions went into effect in Texas. It's just the latest in a long crusade to limit access to abortion care, something my next guest knows a lot about. Dr. Jamila Parrott is an OBGYN and also president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health. Welcome, Dr. Parrott. Thank you so much for having me. So in June, you testified before the Senate Judiciary about the need for federal abortion protections. Towen also spoke, a young woman in Texas who'd had an abortion in order to leave an abusive relationship. Here's a bit of her speaking. I spoke with a kind counselor. She had to tell me that abortion is dangerous and it can affect my ability to have kids. I know research shows that's not true, but the state of Texas required her to tell me that anyway. And on September 1st, the six-week ban went into effect in Texas, and it became even more difficult to have an abortion. So what is the new reality for women in Texas, and, and how have you been paying attention to all of this? We've seen communities outside of Texas that are seeing just a tremendous influx of folks who are seeking care outside of the state. But it's important to understand that that's only a possibility for folks who have the time, the resources, the support, the money to be able to travel outside of the state to, to get care. And the truth is most people don't. And so access to care that you may be able to obtain in New York, in California, in D.C., where I live, is simply not the same. And how does this factor in for Black women, for Indigenous women? There are lots of reasons why Black, Indigenous, and other folks of color have a need, increased need for abortion care. So many of those are related to the systems that aren't in place to support us in terms of access to comprehensive, community-grounded, and responsive reproductive health care, the inability to raise our children in environments that are safe, that are sustainable, that are supportive of us building our family in the way that we want. And all of those things really contribute to us needing access to abortion care more so than other communities may. I want to go more into the policy side in a little bit, but how did you decide that this was your path? How did you decide that being an OBGYN was something that you wanted to do? I don't think that I ever had a memory or a desire to be anything other than a doctor. I became introduced and fell in love with women's health when I was in college. I began volunteering at a Planned Parenthood then. And that was really an introduction to me 
of abortion care. I assumed that abortion care happened within the context of care when you were a gynecologist, when you were an OBGYN, when you were a family medicine doctor. And it wasn't until that time that I saw that in many places in this country, it is it occurs in a separate, uh, in a different way. It's othered. And so becoming exposed to abortion care provision early in my development towards a career in medicine really framed the way that I thought about what my work would be. But I, I say that it's also important to name that I grew up in D.C. And it's really hard to grow up in D.C. and not understand the impact that politics has on the health and well-being of your community. Right. And so for me, I knew that providing clinical care wasn't going to be enough to make sure that the folks that raised me, the community that made me would be well. And I needed to get to those folks who were writing these laws, who were making legislation that was harming us. And so that's where this intersection between health and policy really began to take shape for me. Yeah, I mean, Does it get exhausting as a physician to have to think about the constantly changing legal landscape? I mean, you've kind of gone deeply into this, but thinking about yourself as a doctor, did you think you'd have to be messing with the law on this level? I never thought that this would be, would take up so much of my work. I knew that that there were systems and structures that shaped the way that I would provide care, but I had no idea that so much of my time and energy would be spent in this way, really trying to communicate to legislators, to politicians about the harms that they that they were causing and also their responsibility to support health and wellness for um, the folks that elected them. And when you think about the number of abortion restrictions, 19 states, 106 abortion restrictions as of October 2021. For example, I have read various books where people talk about how there were different ways of dealing with pregnancy in whether it was prehistory or just older history. I know this may sound a little difficult, but like, do you think abortion is over-medicalized? I know, does that sound ignorant? It sounds absolutely accurate. I think most of reproductive health is over-medicalized, right? And anyone, to your point, that takes a look at the history of medicine and reproductive health in this country sees the roots of that. And the roots of that lie in white supremacy values and an attempt to undercut discredit destroyed the Black midwifery force in the South, right? And so what that meant is, is a complete over-medicalization of reproductive health care, including abortion care, right? And so the, the ties between white supremacy values, racism, and reproductive health run deep in this country. But we as healthcare providers have never really committed to grappling with that in any real way. And as a result, we continue to see these growing inequities and outcomes for Black women and pregnant people, right? And so we see these divides. We see this in certainly access to to abortion care, but also in Black maternal health, in the birthing practices of Black and Indigenous birthing people, right? And so that history is real and the over-medicalization is a consequence of that and of us not grappling with that legacy. 
you know, thinking about your role as a physician and as a civic leader and really championing how we approach these issues, where do you want to see us go knowing everything that's happening, you know, kind of in the greater universe? My greatest desire would be that we as, I don't know, a society, I guess, can reach the point where we agree that politics has no place in medicine. We know that abortion care is safe. We know that it is a personal decision. It's a community and a family decision, an individual decision, and not something that should be discussed or debated in the halls of Congress. My hope is that I don't have to make one more visit to Congress or the Senate to talk about science and medicine and medical care. And these conversations can happen instead in our exam rooms, in our in our offices with folks that love and care for us and about us. I mean, I will say that when I was covering 2016, the presidential election from the field, anti-abortion sentiment was such a huge predictor of voter behavior. So I just, you know, part of me, I hear what you're saying, but I'm like, I find it hard to imagine a world where this issue is not highly politicized. It sounds like you still can imagine that. I have to. I have to still believe that it's possible. Otherwise, the question for me becomes, what is this all for? Mm, Yeah. Dr. Parrott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was OBGYN Dr. Jamila Parrott, head of the organization Physicians for Reproductive Health. There are more and more conversations out in the open today about what a representative newsroom can look like and why it's important to include communities in the work that journalists do. C.C. Way received this year's Gwen Ifill Award from the International Women's Media Foundation in part for her commitment to diversity in journalism. She's co-executive director of Open News and started the DEI Coalition as a call-out to unite people in the media fighting against racism in the industry. Welcome, C.C. Hi, Farai. So congratulations on the award. And what does it mean to you? I feel like sometimes I even have a hard time articulating how momentous I feel like it is. Not only because, you know, the past awardees, the four years before me, are absolutely amazing individuals. And specifically because I've had the pleasure of working with Nicole Hannah-Jones before. She was very instrumental in my, like, early ability to be brave about fighting for diversity at ProPublica. And so one, (laughs) getting this award after them, but then also in honor of Gwen and the fact that this award exists in a world in which a lot of journalism is about awarding not sort of this kind of daily needed constant work in transforming our industry, for it to be so visible and valued I think that part has been incredibly meaningful and it's just an incredible honor. It would be so easy to just walk away from this work because, frankly, it hasn't gone well. You know, we've seen a lot of promises from the news industry and not a lot of action. Why did you still feel compelled to step into this or what was maybe an experience that you had that gave you a context for why you do this work? Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like we've been banging our heads on the wall for eternity, right? Mm-hmm. And colleagues that I've worked with who are journalists of color who have said to me, Cece, I support what you're trying to push forward here when it comes to diversity, but I just can't allow myself to participate because it brings up too many wounds. And I get that and I support that. Mm-hmm. I have had my own cycles up and down in which 
It feels like every moment of my day, I spend thinking about how can I make things better for other journalists of color in my situation. And then moments in which I've thought, like, I can't do this right now if I'm going to stay healthy Mm, and I need to take a break. Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that I can take breaks and that taking a break is not the same as quitting something that I believe Mm -hmm. in. And so that was a whole journey and that the whole point of breaks is that you can re-energize or let go such that one day you can return to the work again. Yeah. And I think I did take a break for something like one to two years in which I was aware I pitched in where I could, but otherwise did not put it upon myself to be the primary person thinking about what to do next, what's wrong with this scenario, right? I just, I I needed to stop. Um, Otherwise, it just felt like I was going to break in some irreparable way. Oh, absolutely. And this is also, you know, what what I call unpaid civic labor, (laughs) which women of color do all the time in so many different ways. Unpaid civic labor in trying to prop up voting rights or or various other rights that benefit the the work that we do often benefits, you know, the public at large and yet is, frankly, sometimes resented and feared. So thinking about newsrooms, women of color today represent about 8% of print newsroom staff in the U.S., and there's many different ways in which we are not seeing parity, not only in raw numbers, but in where people live in different hierarchies. Nonetheless, recently, there have been some notable and diverse hires in a bunch of major journalism jobs. So how do you see the state of play today? I have a lot more cause for optimism today than I did two years ago. And I see that in a lot of different places. So I see that both in the actions and recognition and surge in union activity in the last two years. I think the News Guild released some numbers earlier this year. I don't remember the exact stat, but it was something like over the past two years, the number of people who have unionized specifically as journalists in communication work has surpassed the total of the last 10 years, something like that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I think the new groups that are pushing for unionization, either for the first time or at new media orgs, there's a lot of POC involvement and leadership in that work, which historically is not present in the existing structure of unions and journalism But now I feel like what gives me a lot of hope is that they are now starting to become driven by people of color who are explicitly as their number one most important ask is that a company be held accountable to whatever they choose when it comes to an element of diversity that's important to these folks. Yeah. And the Open News website says that you are and I'm quoting your own language, a community of journalists creating a future where newsrooms are anti-racist, equitable, inclusive, and collaborative. So do you make a distinction between diversity work and being anti-racist? And what is it? If so. Yeah. There's so many levels and I'll highlight two. One is that I feel like when people talked about diversity work, especially in journalism, 
what they were really trying to say is like, let's not imply that people are doing racist acts or that anything like that might be happening. Mm-hmm. But instead, we just happen to not have a diverse staff. And if we just hired in a more representative way, or no, I think that's even going too far. If our staff just happened to be representative, then we fix the problem. And like, that's all it is, right? There's right. sort of just this downplaying of like, what are the actual issues here? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is sort of the the general vibe <laughs> that I have about what diver- doing diversity work meant years ago. Then the shift, right, from naming racism and then to naming anti-racism to me means that we're going beyond, like, I have great intentions, I'm not racist, which is a phrase I've heard so often, (laughs) into this realm of which, like, that is no longer good enough. Right. What you need to be, you, me, everyone need to be, is we need to be proactively not okay with racism, dismantling it from our systems that we have embedded in our work, as opposed to just I'm only responsible for my personal self and my intentions. That doesn't cut it. And it's not what we need to actually help people of color and to create an industry that is actually equitable. We have to wrap up, but I I have to just end on Gwen Ifill. I will remember her funeral and all of the people gathered to see her off And we actually had a really beautiful moment at the um, Democratic Convention. We were both covering it in 2016. She was already under treatment for cancer. She looked great. And we just took a photo together. And it was like my screensaver for a long time. And she was someone who I didn't know well, but who always supported me. And she went to the mat for people she knew well and people she didn't. And, you know, I'm getting all choked up here. What does her legacy mean to you? I really wish that I had gotten the chance to meet Gwen in person. I feel like something that I know about Gwen is that she sort of marries this idea of like, we are not here to just bring anger. I think Mm. the phrase that I've heard attributed to her, right, is that this idea of bringing light and not heat. Yeah. And I think that subtle difference in how you approach something is so meaningful to me because, and I felt it before, because I can get lost in the anger sometimes of how upset I am at how things work. And I think there's moments and space dedicated to that. And like, we we need that as human beings to process. Mm. But this idea that in our work, we're going to bring light, which exposes wrongdoing, allows you to call in allies in a way that allows them to continue working with you. It just applies to so many different scenarios. And I I take a lot of inspiration from how Gwen took that approach because I think it's an approach that we can only take when we're at our best. Yeah. You know, and Gwen was so often a demonstration of what we could be like at our best. And I think that is something that has always been special about her. And like one of the main reasons why I wish I could have met her in person. Cece, congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much. That was Cece Way, co-executive director of Open News. 
This week on Sippin' the Political Tea, I'm joined by Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. She's a senior fellow in governance studies, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and serves as co-editor-in-chief of Tech Tank. Welcome back to Our Body Politic, Dr. Turner-Lee. Oh, well, thanks for having me back. So glad to return. And also joining another repeat customer of Brilliance, Mutale Nkande, a race and tech expert, the founding CEO of AI for the People. Welcome back, Mutale. Farai, it's such a pleasure to be back. Well, you know, we have so much to do, so I'm going to jump right in here. Let's begin with the headlines about Facebook. Here's a clip from CNN of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg addressing the Facebook papers. Good faith criticism helps us get better. But my view is that what we are seeing is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company. The reality is that we have an open culture where we encourage discussion and research about our work so we can make progress on many complex issues that are not specific to just us. And Matale, how do you rate that answer? I think Mark Zuckerberg is saying what his shareholders want to hear. Zuckerberg's response is really crafted to at least hold share price. I don't know that given the news that we're going to be increasing share price, but we have to understand how his incentives are aligned. The Facebook brand. So so basically you're 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 starting with the idea that this is about maintaining market value. And it's not as much about like, you know, the bigger issues that we'll talk about later today. So no, not not at all. There is no track record of this company ever responding to the needs, desires and wants of society, or even what's good for our democracy. So in saying this, if we listen to the statement closely, he goes in and invalidates, he tries to put out there this, this idea that these papers are out of context by kind of coming out by saying that we're great and then backing away. It's another, in my view, play to dodge accountability. And we have seen this over and over again. Yeah. And Nicole, the Facebook papers have been out now for a few weeks How is this story unfolding or evolving? Like the headlines keep coming, even if there's not new documents released, there are people doing new takes on it. We all can't sit here and look at the Facebook files as if there were not documents and receipts in them from a long time ago. We all remember the big Cambridge Analytics scandal where that wasn't handled properly. And we also know that Congress is partly to blame because we didn't come up with the right regulatory response, nor do we have legislation that's around data privacy. With that being the case, what is different this time is that we're actually seeing more actors. I don't know if you ladies remember when the co-founder of Facebook did a big spread about all of these problems a long time ago, maybe a couple of years ago, right? But what now we're seeing is that there are individuals within the company that have the protection through the whistleblower statute and language to come out and tell us things that we probably already knew, but they have the inner workings around that. I think what's also interesting, though, is that as we've seen the revelations about their algorithms, their leadership structure, their values, we're also seeing a series of announcements coming out about Facebook around, for example, the ban of facial recognition technologies. Just recently, they have decided that they're not going to use sensitive attributes in ad targeting. These are, I think, ways in which to sort of clear the deck 
But most importantly, they're still not the type of coherent and comprehensive response that we need from Facebook around many of these issues that do require some regulatory or legislative guidance. Yeah. And, and Matali, you know, what about this name change? Like, what do you make of the, the meta Facebook? <laughs> the metaverse, this attempt to relitigate. Like it wasn't, that was Facebook. We're the metaverse. We're, we're different when in actual fact, it's the same company. Facebook as a brand still exists. Much like Alphabet is the parent company of Google. That does not mean that Google search doesn't exist as a company. And just to add to what Nicole was saying, I think for me, these papers revealed that Black women told the truth right at the beginning. I mean, we all know mm-hmm. your slip is showing, which was an yes, online yes. protest. What was that, 2013? That was Black feminists and women of color who actually were able to tell us that 4chan and 8chan existed years and years and years before government and large papers like the New York Times and Washington Post and the others who were given these documents were paying attention. AI for the People is doing a lot of work in what we call the advancement of advanced technologies, right? So we're looking at quantum, Mm -hmm. we're looking at AR, we're looking at VR. But in changing this and making this stake, they're also promising, in our view, to take the mistakes of Facebook through to this new entity, which Mm. actually isn't saying that they're not going to use facial recognition because to use that type of immersive technology, you do need to take biometric measurements. And that's something that we're looking at very closely ourselves. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm going to turn this to Nicole, but but you feel free to jump in too, Matale. Six years ago, I wrote a piece for The Intercept called The Facebook of the Future Has Privacy Implications Today. And I wrote about how mm-hmm. Facebook was filing a patent for back-of-head recognition and how they were aggressively moving to expand their ability to tag people who weren't even Facebook users. So those of us who were paying attention saw these trends coming. Why didn't we do more, Nicole? And who is the we who could do more? Well, I think that's the problem, right? The we doesn't know what they actually are doing. I think what happened with regards to the Facebook product then is that policymakers were way behind the technological innovation. But more importantly, Facebook acted Mm. in the scope of permissionless innovation, which allows for this permissionless forgiveness, which is an apologetic stance towards any type of egregious behaviors that have implications for people. Now, with that being said, AI and technology generally was like that. And we're just now recently seeing these movements towards responsible tech. But let me speak to this meta issue that I think is a meta issue. (laughs) You know, you have a metaverse and you have a name change, typical of companies who want to do some rebrand alignment. But you also have now a Facebook that has the privilege of taking their embedded technologies and placing them on a wider platform of which Mm. policymakers will still be behind with regards to the technological cadence. But more importantly, to be in the metaverse means that you have to submit to the standards of what that environment is. And my particular, you know, problems with something like that is How do you go in an immersive environment that is still developed by people who do not experience or understand the lived realities of groups of people? So you're essentially creating metaverse experiences which may be mismatched, right, with ordinary people or with people with cultural or racial demographics. 
And in my view, a name change doesn't necessarily disregard the fact that you have a company that sees itself on the brink of reordering society in the way that we know it. And that, to me, I think is more problematic when we start thinking about how do we as ordinary citizens connect with this new digital reality that in many respects we don't have agency over. And let's just talk a little bit about whistleblowers for a second. Francis Haugen is the whistleblower who is behind the the most recent revelations, and they've gone wide. But there actually has been reporting showing that most tech whistleblowers are women of color. Nicole, that came from Politico. Are women of color getting credit for the risks they've taken? No, (laughs) we're not, (laughs) not at all. People who have the lived experiences of people of color, women of color in particular, who have been in the space, you know, not in the last year, but for many, many years, in technology, we are often discredited. And I think that speaks a lot to how fundamentally race is positioned in these companies. I was actually watching last night, and I actually know her, the Facebook commercial with uh, Rochelle from Facebook, African-American woman who works in the civil rights division. Mm -hmm. And I was listening and watching that and thinking to myself, Wow, it's so interesting that Facebook is trying to provide the color of the company. And Rochelle is a fabulous individual, an amazing individual who knows her stuff. But we need this company and many other companies to recognize that you cannot make us the products of their goods Mm. and services, that it's important to have a variety of seats at the table, particularly on applications that have long-ranging civil and human rights consequences. I'm jumping in because I can't remember who says this, and you might know, but, you know, someone said that if you're not paying for something, you are the product. You're the product. You're the product. Yeah, you know, because you're being data mined. That's it. And in my view, when you look at companies like Facebook and uh, like the big five, Twitter, Amazon, their boardrooms, their C-suites, their decision-making roles are not equipped with women of color or people of color in general. And when we have come out, we're not there anymore because for some reason, the values that they have asked us to embed into their organizations are those that are counter to where they ultimately land up, you know, mind the best profit for their shareholders. Well, yeah. And and let me, Mutale, you know, come over to you. We've talked about a few different people, you know, including a little bit about your work, but there's also the Black women whistleblowers, you know, Ifoma Ozoma, Erica Shimizu Banks, Timnit Gebru. What is the kind of position of Black women in tech? So there, there are two things. One of the things around Frances Haugen was her level of clearance. Anybody that's worked in that company knows that not everybody gets access to documentation. And so because you have relative power imbalances within teams, it would be even difficult for a woman, but definitely a Black woman, to get to that level of seniority that she would have access to that type of documentation. And even when women are in senior level um, roles, as Timnit was, she was the co-head of um, ethical AI at Google, they're not necessarily respected or credited or given senior support. And we're not speaking about startups. We're speaking about extremely hierarchical companies where having lots of Black women at the bottom is not going to change power structures or incentive structures within the company. 
And when you look particularly at Erica Shizuma Banks, it's really interesting because her role was potentially the most junior of the three whistleblowers that you spoke about. They are seen as the most disposable. What I think Mm. Afoma really pointed out was the lack of financial support for whistleblowing too. So one of the things that we at least know about Halton is that she has all of this financial backing and support coming from renegades of the tech industry to make sure that she has the legal support, the PR support, and the, the, the kind of a structure around her that is protecting her in that work. Those safety nets simply do not exist for Black women. We've been talking about the cutting edge of tech, but not everything that, you know, is is has a tinge of tech has to be new. On Tuesday, Representative Paul Gosar shared an animated video that was altered to depict him killing Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It used to take a Hollywood special effects team to make a video like this. Now a team can do it, but that's not the point. Uh, The point is that Speaker Nancy Pelosi took to Twitter to ask the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to join her in condemning what she called a horrific video. Nicole, I'm going to go to you. This is a member of Congress depicting himself killing another member of Congress, a woman of color who already gets plenty of death threats. What do you make of this? It's really disturbing. I mean, the whole manipulation and use of deep fakes are in and of themselves disturbing because they're able to exploit both the image and the voice of subjects in ways that, again, can dissuade people from exercising their right to vote. But it's also one of those areas that we have seen this type of behavior lead to violence. We are sitting right now in Washington, D.C. with Chairman Benny Thompson talking about an event that some Republicans believe did not happen, even though it did, and where misinformation led people to believe that Joe Biden was not elected. Part of the challenge that we have Mm -hmm. in our democracy is that technology has an opportunistic aspect of it and a very perilous aspect of it. And our inability to not necessarily have kids like my daughter understand the differences, but have people who are mature manipulating that technology to demonstrate their embedded feelings towards women and people of color and other leadership that does not necessarily agree with them, it's disturbing. And part of the problem that Washington, D.C. has had with technology is that it is actually the problem that we have with society. Technology Mm. did not come in and create the political polarization, the discrimination. It is the fact that it is riding along values, norms, assumptions, structural layouts that actually allow the technology to spread that type of hate. Absolutely. Uh, Subu Vincent, who is, you know, a leader in journalism ethics and, and an academic, really has set up a framework of culture disorder. This is not just like information disorder and disinformation. It's like a culture disorder which drives the disinformation, which then, you know, it it keeps cycling and cycling. But Mutale, I just referenced Speaker Pelosi, and she was part of another one of these not-so-high-tech but tech-related controversies about the slowed-down video. It, It slowed down the the audio so that she sounded like she was slurring and Facebook refused to take it down. Now, later, Facebook had another one of these videos and put a partially false label on it. Is that enough? Is that what we're looking to as a solution? 
It's absolutely not enough. What happens when we see deep fake videos, which are really the high tech version of what you're describing, sometimes called cheap fakes, is that you're moving the Overton window. You are creating a situation where that type of speech, that type of action, that type of sentiment becomes acceptable in the political mainstream. And that leads to radicalization. We know this. The science is there. Yeah, I think that you don't have to go as far back to the Nancy Pelosi deep fake to see that this is happening all the time. Look at what happened in the Virginia gubernatorial election, where overnight critical race theory became an issue because we saw images of Black students in schools fighting and all this other stuff. I mean, it's out there and it's actually infecting most of society. But I would like to say this as we close up. Part of this challenge of the Facebooks of the world, as well as the technological innovation, is that you have to have leadership that represents people of color. And right now, we do not have as we don't see in the tech industry, Black people that sit at many of these important agencies that are going to make these decisions. We're not going to get very far if we're still dealing in these environments that don't see us. Well, that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee and Mitali Nkande. Thanks for having us. It was great. So glad to be back. This was great. That was Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, a senior fellow in governance studies, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and co-editor-in-chief of Tech Tank, and Mutale Nkande, a race and tech expert and the founding CEO of AI for the People. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by LWC. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua is executive producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Our senior editor is Verilyn Williams. Paulina Velasco and Sarah McClure are our senior producers. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Our political booker is Bridget McAllister. Emily Daly is assistant producer. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Elizabeth Nakano, and Natina Bean. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. <laughs>